please do join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Psalm chapter 50. Years ago when we started this psalm series, I I thought it best to just go straight through the psalms. Uh, You could do a series where you pick and choose from psalms, but I think it's important to uh, just see what God has for us. And and last week, uh, it was wisdom, and and this week, it's going to be a a, a call, a call to um, acknowledge sin, a call to confess sin, a call to repent, a when we recognize who God is and who we are. Um, I want to begin uh, not with the Bible, uh, but rather with a book, a well-known book, uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. A, a year or so ago, we, in the adult Sunday school class, uh, spent some time studying that book by John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress. And you may recall this scene when Pilgrim was on his way. Uh, Bunyan writes that, quote, two men came tumbling over the wall. The name of one was formalist and the name of the other hypocrisy. I'd I'd love to see that, you know, as a video or a movie, you know, two men tumbling over the wall. You remember uh, Christian went in through the gate, uh, the one way, and as he's traveling, um, others come meet him and and walk with him. And and here are two men that that come tumbling over the wall, formalist and hypocrisy. Um, Soon... Uh, those three are, are, are faced with climbing the hill difficulty. And, and to avoid it, you may recall that one of his fellow travelers turns left and is lost in the great wood danger. And the other traveling companion turns right and perishes among the wild fill, field full of dark mountains of destruction. One went left into danger, the other went right into destruction. Now, it was Psalm 50 in the back of Bunyan's mind when he described these two men who didn't make it to the celestial city. Psalm 50 is a prophetic psalm. It's a warning psalm. It's the first psalm of Asaph last week. You remember we finished the series of Korah, and now we've got this introductory one from Asaph, one of the liturgical leaders of Israel. Like, 40, like Psalm 49, uh, this psalm speaks to man, not to God. It's not a prayer of lament, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer of praise. It's God speaking to man. And in it, we're going to hear the voice of Christ the prophet. Last week in Psalm 49, we heard the voice of Christ our wisdom. Here, In Psalm 50, we're going to hear the teaching voice of Christ, our prophet, summoning his people to covenant faithfulness. These 150 psalms, these songs, they should occupy a prominent and important place in both corporate worship of the church and in the all-of-life worship of the Christian. These psalms, even today's, Psalm 50 is at once familiar and foreign, written over a period of 1,200 years from the 15th century to the 3rd century B.C. They are diverse, and yet they're all unified because they're centered on the one true and living God. And here they once again express the divine human encounter. We remind ourselves that the Psalms are poetry, and when we're reading poetry, we have to slow down. And as we slow down and think 
Our intellect is informed. Our emotions are aroused. Our imaginations are stimulated. And our wills are directed. And when we read the Psalms, not just as words on a page, but as we read them as God's words with faith, we come away transformed and not just informed. Here, the psalm is going to aid in our worship. We don't need exclusive psalmody. In other words, only sing the psalms. We need inclusive psalmody. And I'm so glad, as Rob pointed out, we were able to sing a portion of this psalm. It's going to help us with true worship that is biblically grounded and guided. It's God-focused, it's Christ-centered, and it's Spirit-enabled. Again, the Psalms promote not just corporate worship on the Lord's Day, but all of life worship. The Psalms are a precious treasure for the church, and we neglect them to our detriment, and we pay attention to them to our great benefit, the benefit of growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. So as we turn now to Psalm 50, let's turn to God and ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Psalm 50 poetically and prophetically presents a court scene where we'll all see the presiding judge summon people to appear before him and then we'll see the judge present two accusations or indictments. Let's open up and explore Psalm 50 by looking first at the summons to judgment. Let's listen to the first six verses. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Now, if you're familiar with Old Testament history, this scene is a scene of covenant remembrance and renewal. It's, it's a recalling of the uh, confirmation of the covenant that we read in Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. It's when the law had been given on Mount Sinai, and God's and the covenant was ratified with a sacrifice. And, and Moses presented God's law and the people said, we will do it. And sacrifices were offered. It's recalling that scene. And as times throughout Israel's history, as that covenant has been remembered and renewed. You see that some scriptures in, in the Bibles you may be using, even editorial title this God himself is judge and indeed that's how verse 6 God himself is judge it's an appropriate um, heading or title for the whole the whole scene because here at the very beginning the names of God are piled up one upon another it's the mighty one 
It's God. And it's the Lord. It's not only a couple of general names for God, but it's God's personal name. The name he has revealed to his people, Yahweh. You will be my people and I will be your God. This God, this mighty God, this God the Lord is coming from the He's coming, as it says, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. That's where God shines forth. It's where God's presence was made known in Jerusalem, the temple, Mount Zion. Astounding beauty, but also the scene of smoke and fire and tempest recalls another mountain, Mount Sinai, awesome holiness. So here is God coming, displaying both beauty and holiness. And indeed, some of the Psalms would even speak of the beauty of holiness. Now, in this world of us versus them that continues, I think, to to cause problems from all of us, when Israel hears these words, when God's people hear these words that God, the judge, is coming uh, out of Zion and, as it were, from Mount Sinai, here, here God is going to judge those godless people. God is going to judge the inhabitants of the earth, those from the east and the west. But it's a big surprise, isn't it? God is not coming to judge the earth as much as he is coming to judge his people. You see, God's people may have initially thought, great, we get to witness God's judgment on the unbelieving world, but it's a surprise because God says, no, I'm inviting the whole world to be witnesses to my indictment and my judgment of you, Israel. The one I have chosen, the one who is in special relationship with me. You know, you're summoned to court. Are you summoned to court because you're being accused? Are you summoned to court because you're a witness? Are you coming to court because you're part of the jury? It's God's people in the dock. And the world are the witnesses. And God is judge. God is jury. God is the prosecuting district attorney. And really, there's no defense attorney here present. Peter, in his first letter, Encouraging Christians living in a difficult environment, a hostile world, suffering. He reminds believers that judgment begins with the house of God. Judgment begins with the people of God, and we see that here. Now, with this scene now set, Psalm 50 will highlight two always present dangers to the church. Now, both of these dangers have to do with religion. Uh, external aspects and internal aspects of religion. The first is that of formalism, a mere outward and perfunctory religion. And the second is that of hypocrisy, the practice that does not reflect the profession. Well, let's open up and explore the first charge, this charge of formalism. And let's pick up in verse 7 through verse 19. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, 
Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Here, this first accusation, this first indictment is a rebuke to superficial religion. God here will testify to the truth. Now he says in verse 9, outwardly, there's no problem. You are offering sacrifices. You are, um, you are bringing things before me. However, God doesn't just stay on the outward and the surface. Because what he unfolds in verses 9 through 13 is that they have a wrong understanding of sacrifice. They have a wrong understanding of true religion. And they've fallen into two traps. Verses 9 through 11, the trap is this, that God needs what they had. The trap that they have fallen into is thinking somehow that God actually needs what they are giving him. And we see the language. A bull from your house, goat from your folds. Why? God is the owner of all, every beast of the forest, a cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is mine. That trap is that somehow the people are giving God what he needs. And there's another trap, it's related, but it's further unfolded in verses 12 and 13. Not only that God needed what they had to offer him, but that he depended upon what they gave him. You see, here's the creator-creature distinction being missed. Man somehow thinks that he is giving to God what God needs and that God is dependent upon man. And of course, scriptures in every place speak of man, the creature, being created by God, the creator. Man being dependent on God, not God being dependent on man. And yet, God's people don't understand the purpose of the sacrifice. They're acting as though they are doing something for God. But in verses 14 and 15, we see what God's people truly need. They need to have a right understanding of sacrifice. They need to understand true religion. Look with me again at verse 14. The psalmist writes prophetically, speaking for God, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not a sacrifice of bulls, goats, cattle. I mean, to be sure, at the giving of the law, the sacrificial system was instituted to show the people that they couldn't fulfill the law perfectly. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be punishment. The guilt of not fulfilling the law had to be paid 
The sacrificial system was was instituted for that purpose. To show that on your best days, you can't meet God's standard. It's too high. In a few weeks, we're going to, or excuse me, starting next week, the adult class is going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus and the Beatitudes and then following that, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus shows really the, the height of the demands of the law. The height of the law goes to the depth of who you and I are, to our hearts, to our core. And this is the people being exposed. They need a right understanding of the sacrifice. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in the sacrificial system and in the festivals and feasts of Israel, interestingly, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, the people ate part of that sacrifice. It wasn't all burned up. It wasn't all sent out. The people participated in the sacrifice of thanksgiving. They were fully engaged with that sacrifice. And notice how the psalmist expands this sacrifice of thanksgiving that you see it in performing your vows to the Most High, in in being obedient. You see it be involving uh, a prayer, a call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. It's expressing itself in obedience and prayer and right worship. This, this, all, this sacrifice of thanksgiving is not just saying thank you to God. It's expressing it through a life of obedience, of prayer, of worship. Now, one way to summarize what's going on here is the psalmist is saying to God's people, you don't know who God is. God has no need of what you give him. God is not dependent upon you. They don't know who God is. They're being called to know God. For who he is. In spite of all their religious zeal, the people are are failing to take seriously the spiritual nature of God. They're mechanically pious, but they need to be reminded that God is spiritual. That's what the woman at the well needed to be reminded of as Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ who had come, is speaking to her, speaking about the the nature of true worship in spirit. And in truth, you see, it's not so much that God is worshipped on this mountain or that mountain. No, he's worshipped in spirit and in truth. And the way Jesus will later unfold, especially throughout John's gospel, is the way to right worship is through me. Is through me. This first indictment, this first accusation is a, is a rebuke. It is... He's saying it is no good to have external religion without inward heart change. Remember how Paul in Romans 1 speaks of the unregenerate man? You know what one characteristic of someone who does not know God? They don't give thanks. They're not thankful. And so who is a Christian? A Christian is someone who should be of all things, thankful. 
that the sacrifice they offer is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now notice that this judgment scene here is not for sentencing. We're not going to even hear a sentence, a pronouncement of guilt or innocence in the prison term. But rather it's here to bring truth to light and it's to bring sinners to repentance. You see, truth is meant not only to convict, but also to heal, to change. And one evidence of inward heart change that the psalmist is driving at is true and genuine thanksgiving. They don't know who God is. They need to know who God is, who He's revealed Himself to be. That they are dependent on God and God is not dependent upon them. Well, not only is formalism a danger to the church, but so also is hypocrisy. And let's open up and explore this second charge now as we begin reading in verse 16. But to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. We'll stop there with verse 21. Now here is a movement from, as it were, corporate worship to all of life worship. A, a, a movement from a rebuke for dishonoring God, as it were, in worship to dishonoring God in everyday life. You see, the people needed to know that God is not only spiritual, God is moral. And here being exposed is a failure to take seriously the moral nature of God. So beginning in verse 16, God addresses the wicked, the hypocrites. Maybe later this afternoon you can uh, read Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites, woe to you hypocrites. And of course a hypocrite is where the, the practice doesn't match the outward, or the, the, the profession, it's, it's the actor wearing a mask, hiding, as it were, their true identity, who they really are. These verses draw to mind the time where Jesus says, the, the prophet Isaiah was right about you people. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. You see, these are people who have received the law. They can recite the law. They've memorized, as it were, the Ten Commandments, but they rebel against the law and they reject it. And the psalmist presents evidence beginning in verse 17 through 20. And there's three commandments in particular, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth, to, to prove, to demonstrate that their life contradicts their lips. You see, three of the Ten Commandments in the second table of the law in how you love your neighbor are called in to expose God's people's 
rebellious affections and actions. You see theft, adultery, and false witness. Not just outward, but inward, as Jesus in particular will highlight in the Sermon on the Mount. But also notice, there's this idea that the hypocrite also likes to enjoy sin secondhand. I don't commit adultery, but I like watching other people commit adultery. I don't steal myself, but I benefit from things that are stolen. It's kind of like secondhand smoke. It really does damage, and God's Word is calling our attention to that. That you enjoy keeping the company with those who speak one way with their lips, but their lives reveal something else. The first indictment is empty formalism in the church, and the second indictment is willful disobedience. You know, you've got the two men that have jumped in over the wall, the formalist and the hypocrite. Both of them have come in not through the gate, but some other way. They've taken a shortcut. And in verse 21, we hear God say, these things you have done, all this violation, and I've been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. You see, they don't know who God is. The silence of God, interestingly, allows people to be themselves and to reveal themselves. I think all of our lives are tested, as it were, when God is silent. When we are having to endure and persevere and be patient and we long for God to speak. And he seems to be silent. These people reveal themselves to be who they are in God's silence. But notice how God continues to think, to say that they think that he is like who they are. What a rebuke. You know, some of us can think that God is like us, but there's also another danger that we think we're like God. That we think exactly like God thinks. That God knows in black and white, so we know in black and white. We don't. God is God and we are not God. And whether you pull down God to think that he's like you or you try to pull yourself up to think that you're like God, both are errors. Both are shortcuts. Both are attempts to jump in over the wall onto the way. And this second indictment, there is a, a strong warning. In verse 22, mark this, then you who forget God. Think about it. What's the big crime? What's the problem? They have forgotten God. They don't know him. They have forgotten who God has revealed himself to be. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. 
Here is a warning that God is reluctant to exercise his wrath, but when he exercises his wrath, it is irresistible. God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, lest I tear you apart, he says, and there be none to deliver. But that warning is quickly followed by a promise. Look at verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice. Look back to verse 14. What's the call? What's the command? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Look at the promise of verse 23. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice. Now why would thanksgiving even be thought of as a sacrifice? Not just so much because it's part of the ceremonial sacrificial system of of Israel, but why is sacrifice, why is sacrifice or thanksgiving considered a sacrifice? Think about what it means to be thankful to be grateful. You have to humble yourself, right? Whenever you say thank you to somebody, it's because they have given you something. You have received something. It's hard to be proud and thankful. It's easier to be humble and thankful. It requires a sacrifice, a denial The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice. Um, A few years ago, there was a sermon called A Prayer of Thanksgiving That God Hates. Anybody remember that? A Prayer of Thanksgiving That God Hates. Remember Luke 18, beginning in verse 10? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee said, God, thank you that I am not like this person and that person and the other person. I'm not even like this tax collector. I do this and I do that. And remember, the tax collector didn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. Original language, the sinner. God hates that kind of prayer and sacrifice of thanksgiving. But remember when Jesus healed the ten lepers? What was Jesus astonished by? Only one came back to praise God, to give thanks to God. There's a warning, but here it ends with a promise. This person, the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. These two parts of the psalm, I think, can show us a couple of things. One, we don't understand who God is, and that's a problem. And the second thing is, we don't know who we are, and that's a problem. I was in a meeting the other day with, uh, with some men, and, and one man uh, in our discussion brought up... Uh, some of John Calvin's first words in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And in 
that he speaks of um, of uh, all true and sound wisdom consists of two parts: knowledge of God and of ourselves. Two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And you can start with one and get to the other, and you can start with the other and get back to the one. So this psalm, if anything, is calling us to know God and to know ourselves. To know that we're the ones dependent upon God, not the reverse. That's the rebuke of formalism. And to also know who we are. That our inner life needs to match our outer profession. God's not fooled. We fool ourselves and we fool one another. So whereas the first rebuke was external religion without heart change, without internal heart change is a problem here, this doctrinal profession of belief without corresponding life change is a problem also. This psalm is a prophetic psalm. It's a, it's a call to worship rightly. And where in the scriptures do we see a sacrifice of thanksgiving and, and right worship being brought together? We see it at the end of Hebrews chapter 12, where the author says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You see it? God's awesome holiness and our call to be grateful. It's joined together. So both formalism, superficial religion and hypocrisy... Saying one thing, doing another, hypocritical religion are dangerous to a professing Christian and to the church. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian tells formalist hypocrisy, quote, you come in by yourselves without his direction and you go out by yourselves without his mercy. Should I repeat that? You come in by yourselves without his direction and you go out by yourselves without his mercy. Yet, is there any hope? Is there any mercy for a person who is a formalist, who is a hypocrite, or who may be both? My friends, if you haven't figured this out yet, to some degree or another, we are all formalist, right? We hang our hook on external obedience, not inner heart delight and dependence upon God. And to one extent or another, we're all hypocrites. Who who of us has a practice in our life that actually matches our profession of faith? Is there any hope? Is there any hope? Now, remember the promise of verse 33, that the, excuse me, 23, that the salvation of God will 
be revealed to a particular kind of person. A person who orders his way. Who is that kind of person? It's the person who repents and believes. It's the person who comes in through the door. Remember Jesus, I am the door. The person who gets mercy, the person who has hope, is the person who comes in through the door. The person who comes to God through Jesus. You see, my friends, all scripture points to Jesus and Psalm 50 is no exception. Because Psalm 50 points us, first of all, to Jesus, the one faithful believing Jew. There's only been one man ever lived that wasn't a formalist or a hypocrite, right? It's Jesus. The only one who, from the beginning and for all time, understood true religion, who gave thanks to his Father. The one whose inner life and outer life were one in the same. He asked the Pharisees and others, who accuses me of sin? They couldn't. Oh yeah, they had their clipboards out and they were watching him saying this and that and the other. But when it came right down to it, they couldn't accuse him of sin because there was no sin. And yet, for us and for our salvation, look what happened in verse 22. Lest I tear you apart. You see, Jesus, the, the only faithful believing Jew, he was torn apart in our place and on our behalf. The one who should not have been torn apart was torn apart for us. Talk about a reason to give thanks. So Psalm 50 points to Jesus not only as the one faithful and believing Jew, but finally, as the coming judge and the already come Savior. Jesus is the judge who is coming. Jesus is the Savior who has already come. I encourage you to read the something to think about quote uh, from Knowing God sometime today. Our, our scripture, our psalm says, here comes the judge to be sure. But it also says, here comes the Savior. And his name is Jesus. You see, verse 15 says, call upon God in the day of trouble. He will deliver you. And verse 23 says, and he will show the salvation of God. My friends, Jesus in who he is and what he did makes the salvation of God known. There is no other way. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. And so this psalm calls you and me to run to Jesus now. 
to rest in Jesus today and to be thankful for the salvation that is yours in Christ always. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that in some way the last 30 minutes spent in Psalm 50 has helped us not forget you, but rather to know you rightly, to understand ourselves accurately, and to once again be reminded that we have no hope apart from Jesus, and yet in Jesus we have all things, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to identify and eradicate the formalist in all of us and identify and eradicate the hypocrite in all of us so that we could offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to you from now until eternity. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.